Welcome to Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast powered by Gong. We're your hosts, Devin Reed. And I'm Sheena Badani. Revenue intelligence is a new way of operating based on customer reality instead of opinions, making data-driven decisions based on facts instead of opinions or guesswork. And it's made up of three success pillars, people intelligence, deal intelligence, and market intelligence. You know, the things all revenue teams need and care about. Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals and share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market. You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it. Sheena, this is the first reveal episode of June. It is. The first episode of summer. And if you're anything like me, I feel like we were on tour in February. We blinked twice. We're now working from home and it's just summertime. It is, but I have to correct you because summer doesn't actually start until June 23rd, which is Okay, this is so. a good battle. Let's, let's <laughs> debate here. I have always came up on the assumption or at least been told, and it's probably not the calendar, you know, lunar way of going about it, but Memorial Day is when summer starts and Labor Day is when summer ends. That's the vibe. I would agree, like, yeah, the summer vibe starts then. I'm a vibe guy. We know this about me. So. <laughs> yeah, that is true. <laughs> okay, so the summer vibe has begun. <laughs> I mean, I'll take it, honestly. I will take the vibe. I'm not into technicalities at this point. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I know. It just felt like spring really, really flew by, and now we're just in the middle of summer, which I'm okay with. I love summer. Any major uh, May highlights for you? the personal Major front. May highlights. Um, what was cool? I mean, it was pretty cool. Uh, made the, uh, along with Sarah Brazier, made the Crunchbase uh, top 25 sales leaders you should get to know list. Yes. Congrats again on that. That's Thank huge. you. Yeah, that was really cool. I was unexpected. Um, and that was a cool highlight. Yeah. What, what about you for May? For May, uh, it was actually my birthday. So I'm not going to say the number <laughs> but I had a birthday. I had a I had a, a shelter in place birthday. So that will be one to remember. Good. As did I as well. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. Back in March. Well, cool. So this week we got to hang out with an awesome guest that we met Catherine Stewart on tour. Is that how we met her? Yeah, we met her. No, we actually met her at Celebrate Online. So that was our first Celebrate virtual online. conference. So when we met her at Celebrate Online, she was actually the chief business officer at Automatic which is a remote first company. So the entire workforce is built to be working remotely. Right. So we got to really talk a lot about, uh, you know, tips and tricks and like what they've done internally at their company to be best set up for that. Um, we loved our conversation. So we thought it'd be great to bring her on to reveal as well. Since we um, had the conversation, um, she's actually started a new opportunity. She's the COO at Shippo. So congrats, Catherine. We're super excited for you in this new position. Yeah. And she has really uh, interesting background in terms of she's, you know, she's a lot of diverse experience, but really niche in the publishing world, which makes sense because she shares her uh, education background. Not that we went to the same school, but she's a fellow English major turned business slash sales. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. got that, that going is for true. us. That is true. <laughs> yeah, it was a really cool conversation, though, and I had a good time with her. So I think uh, if it's good with you, let's go and dive into the interview. Let's do it. Well, hey, Catherine, thanks so much for joining us on Reveal. How's your day been so far? Been great. Thanks for asking. Well, I'm curious, as your day got <laughs> started today, what is something that is part of your daily routine, maybe new that we're all you know working from home these days, that you think all salespeople should consider doing? 
So something I do that is probably not unique or original, um, but I'm a bit of a slave to my calendar. So usually before I start the day, I've already blocked out not only when my meetings are, but how I'm planning to use the time in between. It takes a lot of the guesswork out, so there's less contact switching. If I have a 20-minute break or a 30-minute break in between meetings, um, I already have decided what's highest priority to get through. So I find it useful in a, in a variety of ways. It takes a lot of guesswork out of, out of the day. It makes it maybe a little bit less spontaneous, but certainly it chugs along smoothly. I love it. Let's go, let's go into the next one, Catherine. So what does your work-from-home setup look like? I know you've been working remotely for a long time. Um, anything that's uh, you know, interesting or unique that you could point to the audience? Well, I do have to admit that we are in unusual times with the quarantine. And so while I am used to working from home, um, I'm not used to working from home with my husband. So I have to admit that right now I'm (laughs) not taking this call from the home office. I'm taking it from the living room. I'm sitting on my couch and uh, I am feeling slightly nomadic. We will coordinate. So depending on who has what kinds of calls, we will switch off who who gets the premium space. And I'm sure that lots of our listeners are going through similar juggling, especially if you have children at home. So I think you do the best you can. But the one thing I cannot do without, even in this time of quarantine, is is fast Wi-Fi. So that is something that uh, we made an investment in a long time ago and and continue to to support. We're definitely paying more for our Wi-Fi than we are for our phone bills and many other (laughs) uh, potential ways to spend our Mm -hmm our monthly budget. But yes, the Wi-Fi is one I'm always grateful to have. So worth it though. (laughs) Any funny or strange experiences, like any memorable um, video conferences that you've had, like guest appearances or funny mishaps? (laughs) I'm sure. You know, what's funny is that we've definitely had more of them in the last week than uh, I think is is typical. Um, We were trying to entertain uh, a two-year-old. So we were doing a Zoom call with a friend and uh, installed Snap Camera. <laughs> the next morning, uh, not realizing that it would default to on, um, not only does it default to on, but it defaults to the potato face. Anyway, um, <laughs> I enjoyed my first Zoom call of the day, fortunately a couple of minutes early, but still um, was somewhat appalled to find that I did not know how to turn the potato face off. So it was That's just like funny. that meme that has been going around the internet. And um, <laughs> yeah, so fortunately, <laughs> did figure it out. Um, and uh, now those instructions are ingrained in memory. Um, but that was definitely a, that was definitely a moment. That's that's really funny. And I'm sure a couple of people got some uh, good laughs out of that. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your background. Um, you know, you have a pretty interesting career where you studied psychology and then you worked at Random House where you helped them really shift their business from selling physical books to digital books. And now you are a go-to-market tech executive um, currently at Automatic. Can you walk us through a little bit of your um, career history and what kinds of decisions you may have made um, in between that got you where you are today? I was actually an English major back in college and expected to go into publishing originally only um, when I got my very first offer, which was from the Oxford University Press, it was uh, for something that equaled significantly below minimum wage if you divided the total number of hours that you would be working into the annual salary. And uh, I wasn't sure if I'd be able to really afford living in New York City unsubsidized on that kind of income. So um, I ended up uh, instead 
making a bit of a pivot and going into the business side. So I ended up um, joining McKinsey as a consultant. And fortunately, they didn't expect a lot of prior knowledge, and they were willing to do a lot of training on the job, which is something I greatly benefited from. But it was a it was a great experience. I did I did get a crash course in in business and particularly in monetization. Most of my projects, while some of them were focused on cost cutting, most were focused on revenue growth. So I was fortunate in that respect. That ended up being the common thread for the, the rest of my career. Essentially, was helping companies increase their revenue and profitability. After working at McKinsey, I scratched the edge of publishing by joining what was at the time Random House. I say at the time because um, it was not too long after that that Random House, the largest English language publisher for non-academic texts, purchased Penguin, which is the second largest publisher. But while I was at Random House, the focus was how can we um, weather the significant change in the market from people consuming and reading content in a written form. They go to a bookstore, they buy this book, they increasingly are ordering from Amazon to where they buy an e-reader, a Kindle, uh, Sony. So at the time I joined Random House, digital books, the percentage of total sales was less than 0.01% for the industry as a whole. And by the time I left, it had gotten much closer to 20%. So it was a very significant shift. And there were lots of fun and interesting questions to solve around um, what does that look like for a publishing house? And what do the relationships look like with retailers? It used to be that Barnes & Noble and then, of course, Borders were very significant customers of publishing houses. But that was changing. Now it was Amazon and then also Apple and Google was getting into the game. It was definitely a free-for-all with the large tech companies all getting involved. And so that was a really exciting time. I ended up working on a lot of questions that related to these large tech companies. So that led to an interest in exploring the other side. And I ended up joining Facebook, also working on strategy and revenue growth and I can tell you more about that, but since I've already spoken for a fair amount, I figured I'd take a pause and see if you have any questions up until that point. Yeah, no, that that's uh, super great context. I think, um, you know, the disruption of an existing category or space that you may be operating in um, is something that a lot of um, listeners may be working at companies where that has happened or in the process of happening um, and being agile enough to think creatively of how can you take advantage of these new changes that are going on. And then even career-wise, um, that was a decision that you that led you to uh, take the next step and go to Facebook. Yeah, absolutely. It certainly is a time that I am increasingly thinking back to the time at Random House because um, at, it was still during the recession. Um, I joined Random House in I think either 2008 or 2009. It was also a time of great uncertainty for that particular industry. So it wasn't just that sales were down, but also it was unclear what sales were going to look like over the next couple of years. So there was a lot of scenario planning, a lot of thinking ahead towards, okay, well, if this happens, what do we do? If this other thing happens instead, what do we do then? And uh, that certainly feels familiar now. Right, right. And so now you're chief business officer at Automatic. Uh, can you tell us a little about what your current role entails? Yeah, absolutely. So I can also pick up where I left off. Um, at Facebook, I ended up working on a variety of things, um, starting with just revenue growth. And uh, at the time, Facebook's revenue, this was about a year before the IPO back in 2011, was very focused on 
gaming. Um, that's where the easiest revenue dollars were to be had. But there was tremendous potential to, to grow. And so what I ended up working on was the verticalization of the sales teams and how can we make sure that we're staffed as well, um, appropriate to each geography. So there was a lot of sales operations work that we were doing to start. And then I ended up ultimately working as well on the three-year forecast, thinking about what products we should be developing that would get us beyond incremental growth and into something fundamentally different. It was right after the acquisition of Instagram, which I wish I'd had something to do with. But honestly, that was <laughs> mostly just Mark Zuckerberg in a room with Kevin and Mikey. And then um, after that, thinking about how we can monetize that through ads. So Instagram ads is something I worked on, video ads, and then worked on um, the potential of creating an ad tech business unit. So we created the Facebook audience network. I ended up switching over to the product side to launch it and then focused on that for about a year before Matt Mullenweg, who is the founder and CEO of Automatic, called me up. We'd met at a conference maybe a year ago a year before then, and uh, said, have you thought about online publishing? Have you thought about WordPress? So that more or less takes us to, uh, to today, since I'm now still at Automatic. Yeah, tell us a little bit more, um, particularly, you know, like all the go-to-market initiatives on the sales and marketing side that you're focused on at Automatic. What have some of the major initiatives or projects look like that you've worked on during your time there? When I joined Automatic, it wasn't so dissimilar from Facebook in that the philosophy was we should create a great product, something that customers love, and the money will come. We're not sure how, but we think it will. There was no sales team. There was no marketing team. There was some thinking that went into pricing, but nothing particularly structured. There wasn't any A-B testing. There wasn't a lot of, in fact, there wasn't any consumer research. What else were we lacking? We didn't have any business intelligence or business operations. We didn't have <laughs> any partnership teams. There was a lot of opportunity we weren't taking advantage of because we hadn't made those investments. Sure. The company was very focused on engineering. So there was a lot of room. <laughs> so the first thing I did was put in place OKRs um, and just overall company goals so that we could all make sure we were running in the same direction. The second thing I ended up doing was actually um, something I had not expected at all, which was M&A. Um, we wanted to get into the e-commerce space and we didn't currently have a great solution for our customers. Um, we knew that a lot of WordPress users wanted to also start an online store. And we had integrations with Equid and Shopify and um, a couple other, I think Gumroad, a few other um, startups that provided e-commerce platform functionality. But we felt that it was important enough that we wanted to own it ourselves. So we ended up purchasing an e-commerce platform um, called WooCommerce that is now our second largest uh, division in terms of revenue at Automatic. So I think that ended up being a good call. Yeah, and then yeah. after that, starting um, marketing partnerships, inside sales, and a variety of other um, teams and functions that would allow us to better execute and monetize the great products that the engineers had already built. Maybe you could double click into your inside sales team a bit. Um, it sounds like you had to develop that from scratch. What does the team look like today? And um, maybe you could even talk about like the profile of uh, the inside sales reps that you've hired. What kind of characteristics are you looking for that for in them? So interestingly enough, we are still fairly focused on marketing as the priority. We do have inside sales 
Um, we're doing a lot of that, though, through um, a third party. We do also have enterprise sales, but it's a, it's a relatively small team, given that we have so much inbound interest that we haven't needed to do a lot of proactive sales. So I can also step back and give a quick overview of what um, Automatic looks like. So um, we provide blogging technology and website building software to SMBs or individuals. And we also have um, this e-commerce division that I described. And we bought Tumblr last year, so that gives us uh, a foothold in the advertising space. And then we have um, an enterprise division. So, for example, TechCrunch and VentureBeat and a lot of, um, well, let's just say, um, well, the White House. <laughs> so we've got some government um, properties and some hospitals and, and whatnot that will run their, their websites off of of WordPress. And we do the hosting, we do a lot of um, bespoke support for them as well. So that's roughly the business. We also have developer tools. The main way that the products are sold is through marketing, even including on the enterprise side, although um, we have been investing more and more in sales reps because there is so much that they can do for us and that we, um, we've had great luck, especially over the last couple of years, building that team out. And then we're also building out direct sales for Tumblr so that we can better take advantage of the advertising opportunity. So historically, we have had an over-reliance, I'd say, on programmatic, which is important, but there is so much that, as our listeners know, sales can do to open up new revenue streams that um, we have decided to make a significant investment in bringing that back as well this year. It's a, sort of going a bit broader, but that is the overall appearance of, of Automatic. Yeah, th- thanks for that context. That's super helpful um, and sets the stage for folks who may not have been as familiar with it. And I'm, I'm personally uh, pretty surprised by uh, the fact that the sales team is really, really tiny and it's all uh, primarily marketing driven. So uh, you guys do have a, a great product. So kudos to all the work that the team's done there. It's certainly been a focus for us over the last 12 months and will continue to be so as well in the future because we have seen what a great sales team can do and want to invest further in that. Terrific, terrific. I also wanted to congratulate you. I know you're going to be um, starting a new role at Shippo. You'll be COO there uh, in just a few weeks' time. Uh, Maybe you could give us a a quick snippet of what life is going to look like for you in a few weeks. Well, in the sense that I'll continue to work from home, that will (laughs) not change dramatically. Uh, Shippo is an in-person company. Uh, It has an office here in San Francisco, but given that um, COVID-19 has affected us all fairly dramatically, um, everyone at Shippo is also working from home for the indefinite future. So in that sense, that will be unchanged. I'll be overseeing when I join Shippo in a couple weeks, sales, marketing, business development, customer support and success, and HR and Shippo. It's somewhat similar to Automatic in that um, because of the, the very wide customer base that are SMB, a lot of their, their current focus has been on marketing. That said, they do have an excellent inbound sales team and a small outbound sales team that's looking to grow as well. So um, one of the number one priorities for the company that I'll be focused on when I join is going to be thinking about how we can position sales for for success and what we want that team to look like. Um, There are already a few roles that are open 
that we'll be looking to hire for. And we'll also want to uh, think more broadly as well about enterprise, because while enterprise is a part of the customer base, it's not getting as much attention from the sales team. And so that is something that we're likely to make some investments in as well. Super. Well, good luck as you transition into that new role. I'm sure the team is thrilled to have you join. I can also give a quick overview of what Shippo is, just in case that's helpful, because um, <laughs> there are many startups. Um, Shippo does, um, it provides shipping software that is um, helpful to a variety of different kinds of businesses, but helps them um, access the best postage rates and also um, additional features and functionality around um, returns and tracking and um, figuring out what shipping is going to cost. And so it's, uh, it's a variety of different services that can help small businesses get their physical products to their customers more easily, um, more cost efficiently, and in a way that really delights the customers and creates a special relationship between the brand and their purchasers. So um, at a high level, that's, that's what Shippo does. That's rad. That's, that's super exciting. I'm curious, Catherine, as you go into this new role, you're, you're going to have a lot of different teams reporting to you. I'm curious how you define, you know, kind of the core strengths or skills uh, of your leadership style and how you think that'll help as you, you know, uh, step into this new role. I love building teams because I like um, first the creation of something new. I think there's so much satisfaction that comes from when you build something that hadn't been there before and then you get to see it work. <laughs> so for example, with partnerships with Automatic, it was pretty exciting to within maybe a year of hiring that team to see that was already contributing to more than, I'd say it was somewhere between 15 and 20% of the revenue, um, which for a team that's only been in place for a year, I think is, is a pretty, is something to really be proud of. And what I think is most important is acknowledging that um, those achievements will not come from me. I'm just one person. I can put the right processes in place and I can try to put the right people in place. So figuring out the right match between each person and what needs to be done at the company and making sure that we're making good hiring decisions. Those are the things that I can, I can contribute. Um, but ultimately, the success is the success of the team. And I'm really excited to join what's already a great team at Chippo and see how we can together take the company to the next level. Yeah, that's great. Do you have any advice for the sales leaders listening who are also managing maybe one team or, or multiple teams like you will, uh, but doing it remotely? Yeah, there are some challenges of remote work. And even at Automatic, um, we would really do a mix between remote and in-person because each team would get together once a year and then the whole company gets together once a year. And then we've got a few conferences spread out because we would have large conferences for each of our development. We had a developer conference in the U.S., one in Europe, one in Asia, um, which would also be watering holes for the, the company employees. Um, and then if I oversee, let's just say, let's, if, if you oversee a number of teams and you're traveling for each of them, and then um, if you're on the executive team, you're traveling at least once a quarter to meet with the rest of the executive team, and then you're attending some of their team meetups as well, because naturally you don't want silos to exist between these different functions. So I would attend engineering meetups, or I would attend 
design meetups, even though those weren't directly areas that I was um, um, was managing. So you end up traveling a lot, <laughs> and that's certainly something that um, it, you know, from a lifestyle perspective, some people would love it. Some people certainly um, wish that were less. Um, but that has not been possible naturally in this COVID-19 world. And why I'm bringing it up is because this will actually be new for me. It's fairly new for me to not travel, at least to meet people in person to start. And while I've met some of the team already, um, most of the team I haven't, at least not face-to-face. And so I think there are challenges that we are all facing and there is no easy solution. Um, in-person, I think, is preferable for developing a relationship and establishing trust because um, you get so much more information when you're seeing someone face-to-face than you do when you're hearing their voice or when you're getting a Slack message from them. I think it's a bit of a, almost a hierarchy in terms of how much information you're able to pick up from that particular interaction. And while there is so much value to Slack and to text-based communication, there's so much value to long-form communication that keeps track of meeting notes and decisions to be made and strategic plans. There's a time and a place for all of this, but I do think that onboarding and meeting a new team and developing new working relationships is best done in person. And so what I'll try to do is mimic that as much as possible. So more Zoom calls, at least to start, um, so that we can get a, at least a feel for <laughs> where we all are. Um, I like to sometimes rely on, <laughs> they might sound a little bit hokey, but when you're remote, you don't get the same chit chat before a meeting starts. You don't get to see how your colleagues are feeling. You don't get to ask those informal questions as easily. So something that a career coach told me to do and that I still do is kick off check-in meetings. So team, um, you know, weekly team meetings, for example, with something called green, yellow, or red. So people will quickly go around the proverbial Zoom room and say, just in a minute or two, I'm green. It's, you know, it's, my weekend was great. <laughs> Very excited to kick off this Monday. Have a lot of, have a lot of work that I can't wait to dive into, blah, blah, blah. Or they might say, um, actually, um, I'm red because this deal has been going sideways. I'm not really sure how to handle it. It's really been on my mind, you know, and that way you at least get a sense for how people are emotionally and it can include the personal as well. So actually one time that I was particularly glad I did this was um, when someone on my team said, actually, I'm red because my wife was in a car accident this morning. She's now at the hospital and I'm waiting to hear how she's doing. <laughs> in that moment, it was like, okay, I'm really glad you brought that up. I can see why you might have been uncomfortable <laughs> um, bringing that up without that formal forum. You, you might not want to be on this call at all. You, you do. You, you take care of the situation. Right. Um, there's nothing that you can't miss. <laughs> right. But I've found that doing that green, yellow, red will, will somehow surface these issues that other people, without that moment, without that sort of two-minute having, having an unstructured time to, to speak to what's on your mind, some of those topics don't come up otherwise. Yeah, I really like that approach because I think, you know, that's exactly it. I was actually having uh, a conversation with my team this week and I was like, I think uh, one of the things I miss aside from just, you know, the interaction aspect is like you can look at someone at 2.30 and kind of just get a read on them, right? Their body language, how they're how they're acting, kind of 
get a sense if things are red or green uh, on site. But I like this activity to kind of make sure, hey, like you probably have a, a good grasp on what's going on on the to do's, right? Or nine to five. But there's a lot going on, especially right now, uh, you know, five to nine and, and over the weekend. And so I have to imagine, you know, it's uh, your, your team appreciates, you know, that that opportunity to be a little vulnerable and to kind of, uh, you know, connect that hey, it's not always green light. And when it's red light, it's OK to share. and We can all kind of you know, rally around and, and provide understanding. Yeah, I think that's probably even more important now because times are tough for most of us and knowing, OK, well, you know, my wife was supposed to have the kids and take them to the park, but because it's pouring rain and <laughs> um, they're actually running around the house and I am huddled in the closet, you know, trying to trying to just get my moment of quiet or whatever it may be. Or, um, you know, I, I have an aunt who is this is not actually the case, but it could easily be um, who is in the hospital because she's sick with COVID-19 and we're all very worried. I just feel that particularly now. There is a lot of anxiety. There is a lot of change. Um, we're all doing our best, but having a sense of where your team is at emotionally as well as in their work um, is important. And I think it's important as well to have those conversations to adjust work so that both the manager has visibility into what he or she can expect from their team. So that's really important. I don't want to have any surprises if they can be avoided. Um, but I also want to um, take into account the specific needs of the team, because if they're now a single parent with two kids and no, no child care assistance, then we're probably going to need to adjust expectations and workload to, <laughs> to make things possible. So I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into remote work and uh, the culture and style that has been developed at, at Automatic, you know, just for some context you guys have over 1,100 employees. I think you call them automaticians, if I'm saying it correctly. Uh, in <laughs> yeah, over, uh, great. <laughs> in over 75 countries that speak 93 different languages, that's pretty remarkable. I'd love to understand, like, what was the intention that the founders had when they decided to build the company in this remote way, and what are some of the benefits to having an all remote uh, company? Well, the company started remote because the software started remote. So the software was built, the software being WordPress, was built by um, Matt Mullenweg and Mike Little. And Mike Little was based in the UK and Matt was based in Texas. And the two of them collaborated very well, despite the geographical distance and the change in time zones. And they produced um, together a terrific product. And so when Matt decided to start a company around WordPress that would monetize this software, he was already used to working remotely and, and used to that style. And so he saw no reason why he would have to do it any differently. And what started out as a remote relationship between two people expanded to three and then eight. And then from, from there to um, the over 1,200 employees that we have now. So I'd say that was the, at least the original philosophy. It was much more organic, but we have chosen to stay with that philosophy because it does confer many advantages. So you can hire people wherever the talent may be. You're not restricted to a single geography. And talent in Silicon Valley can be very expensive as well compared to talent in other places. 
Um, it also allows us to attract people who may not want to be in major metropolitan areas. And I think that's been very helpful to me when I've been hiring teams because I've hired a lot of people from companies we've all heard of, say Google or Facebook and Adobe, and they're, they're based in major cities, but they don't want to be. They want to go back often home. So a lot of people will take the job and then return to Ohio or to a small town in France or usually wherever they grew up um, or where their families or their wives' families grew up um, and, and whatnot. So they can be closer to, uh, closer to what they consider to be home. Some people have taken the job and enjoyed a nomadic lifestyle where they will spend six months in France and then another six months in Italy and another <laughs> three in Singapore, um, just so that they can explore the world, which is another potential hedge. But I, I find that to be often less successful because there is an advantage to ensuring that your team has very good Wi-Fi and if they're always changing time zones, it's hard to balance it. One thing to manage people across European and U.S. time zones, it's quite another to manage them across Asia, Europe, and <laughs> at that point, it becomes very hard to get everyone on, the, on a call at the same time. But long story short, um, the main advantage I see is the flexibility and the geographic opportunity in terms of being able to attract and retain really talented employees. So that's been a huge advantage to the company. And certainly more and more companies seem to be, even before COVID-19, considering moving to remote environments. And I think not only is it useful for hiring and for retention, but it's also inevitable in some ways. So, you know, Facebook, which I can easily compare it to because I was working at Facebook before, had a very different philosophy. It was all about, we want people here as close as possible. Ideally in Menlo Park, we'll accept commuters from other places in the Bay Area, but we will not be opening an office in San Francisco. We'll have an office in New York for any sales reps that need to be close to clients, but we don't want engineers there. Um, same stance on London. <laughs> the, the, the goal was to find great people who would then be willing to relocate to Silicon Valley and, um, or to hire locally. And at some point, though, that doesn't scale. Everything stops scaling at some point. Um, so I'm not just saying that in-person stops scaling. There's certainly challenges to scaling remote environments as well. But certainly at Facebook, it's already well beyond the point where, I mean, within my first year, uh, the standards were starting to relax a little bit in terms of, okay, fine, we'll let engineers work in New York because there's so many who want to that we're really missing out if we don't make that possible. And okay, fine, this didn't happen until after I left, but all right, we'll allow there to be an SF office. Um, that was sort of a gradual one where Instagram got got a bit of an exception first because they were already in San Francisco. But eventually, I think this was in maybe 2015, maybe a little later even, it was allowed that there could be a San Francisco office. But practically speaking, even if you're in Menlo Park, a lot of your meetings will have to be over Zoom anyway because it takes so long to get from one meeting location to another. We're talking about a massive campus at this point that not everyone can afford to take 20 minutes in between meetings to get from one to the next. It's just inefficient. So I think that what we mean when we say remote is, is starting to change and that a lot of new technologies, new in a little bit of quotation marks, but newer technologies like Slack or, um, or Zoom, um, even for companies that are not trying to be remote, are becoming increasingly important.
One of the things that's so important when you are growing and building a team is establishing trust, uh, which is a two-way effort. And I can imagine is much more difficult when you are hiring remotely than maintaining a remote team. Do you have any tips or pointers of what you've been able to do to build that initial trust with a new team member and then how you maintain that on an ongoing basis? With new team members, they have my trust. Either I hired them or someone else who I think highly of hired them in almost all scenarios. So I believe that they have, they've already earned my trust before they begin. It's possible to lose that trust, of course, if they aren't meeting expectations, but I see no reason for why they need to work extra hard in the beginning when I've already interviewed them or someone else has, and they've already been through quite a process to just get the job. So people start with trust. They can lose it. However, trust is also based much more on what their output is, what their, in, what their impact is on the company rather than something like FaceTime. And in that sense, I think remote is really important because um, it makes it impossible <laughs> for me to judge or put too much emphasis on something like FaceTime um, because it doesn't exist. And I do think that's important. I don't want to penalize an employee who's exceptionally efficient because they're only working, say, five or six hours a day. If they're able to get their job done to a high standard on five to six hours a day, congratulations, power to them. They should they should <laughs> enjoy a walk in the park or a lunch with their family or whatever that they want to do with that extra time. If someone is not meeting expectations, though, then there is a bit more handholding that needs to occur. There needs to be Um, more ongoing dialogue as to what the expectations are, um, what the challenges are that the employee may be facing. And then I can sometimes require certain things. I have done this very infrequently, but I have required sometimes FaceTime equivalents where, okay, here are the hours in which um, I'm expecting you to be online. And again, that's rare. It's only something I've done when something like responsiveness is missing and impact missing. And I'm wondering if the person is just not working, <laughs> which is, again, is very rare because we have um, a good and robust hiring process. But it is sometimes the case that people who are very hard workers when they're getting a lot of oversight can struggle in a more remote environment and find it difficult to manage themselves to be um, to be basically having the same productivity that they would if they were in an office. And I would imagine that probably not unique to automatic, especially now that more and more companies are operating remotely that didn't have to before. And um, I think that those are real challenges that we're all probably grappling with more so now than before, but you can certainly manage them because there are equivalents to FaceTime. You can say, I expect you to be on Slack at least six hours a day. Here are roughly the hours I'm expecting, and and here's why. And then lastly, um, I just wanted to acknowledge that some roles will already need to have more of a FaceTime or schedule equivalent, but this approach that I'm describing works very well for teams such as marketing or sales where you can rely on people to self-manage and to have that flexibility and to enjoy it. But for certain teams like customer support, if you're trying to match market hours and ensure that you've got 24-7 coverage, then that's, that's quite a different situation. And even for some of these other teams like business development, 
you do want to make sure that people are overlapping with their partners or the M&A, the target that they're trying to acquire. So um, I do work through that on a case-by-case basis. And if someone's moving to France, and yet most of the partners are in San Francisco, before they make that decision, I make sure they know what kind of time shifting will be required so that they can still do their job to a high, a high degree of standard. Uh, I have a quick last uh, question for you, Catherine, before we dive into our follow-up, or excuse me, our wrap-up. Uh, I'm curious of, you know, for all the sales leaders that are, are moving remote, what do you think is like the most surprising challenge? Uh, maybe it's from your experience and you're like, hey, as, as we're working remote, this has kind of caught me off guard. Uh, what do you think that surprising challenge is that sales leaders are, are trying to work through right now? And of course, any advice that you have to help them out? Yeah, something I've observed um, actually from my husband's situation, um, which is perhaps more relevant because he was in person up until a month ago. His company wasn't prepared as much as Automatic was for that transition because they hadn't expected it. And so a lot of their processes were ones that required in-person interaction. So, for example, it wasn't easy for him to know what the priorities were for his team because the way that was usually communicated was, you know, they would they would sort of catch up in the hallway. It was a small community. It was a small company. And, um, you know, all of these things would just they would just organically occur. So while the manager had these stand-ups, she wouldn't usually tell people what her priorities were in the stand-ups. She was just collecting information from her direct reports as to how their weeks were going. And so that was okay because there was this other way that that information about her priorities was organically being communicated to the team. But it fell apart when the team was no longer in person. So I think that managers are probably going to have to get a little bit more structured and formal about how they communicate, what cadence, if they're not used to doing regular one-on-ones because they would just rely on someone to swing by their desk when that person needed them, things like that I think are going to have to change because there is no swinging by someone else's desk in a Zoom world. You have to schedule it or else it's much less likely to happen. And it's not possible for someone to happen to hear what your priorities are as a manager because there are no overheard conversations. There are no, you know, again, bumping into each other. I think that additional, almost like a muscle um, or discipline of being really clear and proactive about communication and making sure that that information is not just in your head, but in everyone else's and is accessible. Like we're going to have to, as managers, come up with more processes, be really consistent about adhering to them, be really transparent about what it is that's important um, and what we're working on and spending our time on so that our teams can get by without a lot of these other interactions that they're used to. That's awesome advice. I, I really like that clear and constant communication, especially as it applies to process, uh, which, you know, isn't always, uh, you know, the, the most fun thing to talk about, but I think it has, you know, this, this change in working environment has definitely, you know, put some pressure there and, and if you're not constantly communicating, uh, you know, goals and priorities, uh, those processes can really take a hit and kind of slow things down. I think that's right. And if you're not used to as well having your team. Um, if you're not used to doing one-on-ones, you're just used to having the team escalate issues as they come up, then you're going to need to recreate that ability for people to continue to escalate, to continue to find you, to be available only remotely when they can't see you. And I do think that going back to the basics and making sure that you're doing those regular one-on-ones, you're having office hours, that <laughs> your goals are published. These things, I think, will make it a lot easier for your team to adapt in this 
different environment. Most definitely. All right, Captain, we're going to head into our final question, a question that we ask all of our sales leaders uh, at the end of the episode, which is, how would you describe sales in one word? Maybe omnipresent. <laughs> omnipresent. Interesting. I was not expecting that. Wow, that's a now, new one. Now that I've asked you to say it in one word, but the word omnipresent, I feel like definitely deserves uh, a little bit more detail there. Can you elaborate why omnipresent came to mind? Because I think that sales is not just limited to sales teams. Sales is a part of absolutely everything we do and almost every part of a company. Um, I agree more. It's a part of fundraising. It's a part of partnerships. It's a part of, um, <laughs> honestly, everything. Even our finance team, they need to be strong at sales because they need to communicate what it is that um, makes our company <laughs> special and different. And if we need to be adhering to different KPIs, why? Influence, really. Influence convincing others of what we believe is important to achieve or pursue. I think it exists in truly every walk of any business. And it is so, therefore, important that all of us honor sales for <laughs> what it is and try to become better salespeople ourselves. It's amazing. I love that. I love it. Yeah, I have to say, uh, no offense to any of our previous respondents, but I think Omnipresent takes the cake for me. That's my favorite. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Catherine, for your time, your expertise and wisdom is much appreciated. Thanks for stopping by. Great to have you. All right. Well, thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Every week, we bring you a micro action, something you can think about or do. And this week, it's time to do. More specifically, we want to hear from you and how you've overcome the working from home challenges. This podcast is all about sharing learnings and insights, so let's crowdsource this thing. We've covered multiple challenges in the past few weeks of remote work and leadership, and we'd love to hear from you what's working for you and your team. Send your ideas and tips to us at reveal at gong.io. In our next episode, we'll share the best of the best, and of course, give you and your team a shout out. Again, that's reveal at gong.io, R-E-V-E-A-L at G-O-N-G dot I-O. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday. And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there. And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then. And if you have any feedback or you want us to interview one of your favorite revenue leaders, just email us at reveal at gong.io.